Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook. At West Coast Motorcycles. This week, my guest is Guy Loveridge. He's a friend and colleague. He, well, he does all sorts of things. He's a writer. He's been the chairman of the Guild of Motoring Writers. He's a noted auctioneer. And he's sometimes an actor. And he's not like me at all, which is probably why we get on so well. Um, we are very different men, but um, we're good mates. And he's a very entertaining person to have on the show. He's been on before. He's a great guest, Guy Loveridge. Welcome to Steve's Speed Shop. My guest this week is uh, my friend and colleague, Guy Loveridge, a man who wears many hats, some of them crash hats. <laughs> Writer, author, actor, racer, auctioneer, and chairman of the Guild of Motoring Writers. But to be. To be. To be chairman of the Guild, having been chairman of the Guild a few years ago, Steve. I take over again in May. So you called me and said, uh, would I like to spend six days driving around Europe, 3,000 miles, in a 70-year-old car. And I said, yes, of course I would, because who wouldn't? You did. Uh, it was as basic as that. Um, I had been dreaming of doing it for years. I read Gullible's Travels by Alan Hess. Right, let's, let's, let's reset here slightly. So, just after the war, the British motor industry was... Let's, let's, let's get into this. Was it in a good state or a bad state? Because I think... A lot of people would think, oh, yeah, it must have been terrible after the war, but dare we say the unsayable, the war was actually pretty good for a lot of manufacturers, particularly motor manufacturers. It was good from the fact that they managed to stay alive and they got rich on military orders. It was bad from the fact that the Luftwaffe bombed the living Watsit out of their factories. And all those lovely orders stopped. Yeah. 1946, the RAF don't need 10,000 Merlin engines a month. So what did Austin do during the war? Because, I mean, I know a lot of motor manufacturers got put onto other duties. They made ordnance, they made ammunition. Austin's made munitions, they uh, licence-built Merlin engines, they constructed Wellington bombers at Longbridge as well. But there was always a little team under Sir Leonard Lord thinking about this is going to end one day. What are we going to do next? A lot of the motor manufacturers were doing that, weren't they? Because I know Vincent were at it in the motorcycle world. They were strictly forbidden from, from doing that sort of work. So they said that they worked at night and in their spare time. And the blueprints for the post-war bikes were done on the back of existing blueprints. I'm not sure how that would work, because surely it's sure through. But um, And, of course, Renault, the 4CV, was developed in secret during the war while they were having to work for the bloody Nazis. Yep, and there's a lovely story about... Um, or oh, Nazis, <coughs> as Churchill Nazis, used to say. Nazis, uh, Ettore Bugatti, um, French manufacturer, but of course Ettore Bugatti was Italian. So he said to the Germans when they came across the border into Alsace, where his factory was, well, hang on a minute, I'm an Italian, we're allies. 
What are you doing? Checked. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. You're, you're an ally of ours. Fine. Fantastic. And he said, I've got to keep my workforce here and I'll, I'll do good works for uh, the Germans, for the fatherland. So they moved him down to Vichy, France. All his workforce there. A lot of them were Jews. Set him up with a factory. And he said, right, um, what do you need? And they said, well, we need little um, in-the-field portable generators. So he said, right, I'll do your single-cylinder 50cc portable field generator. Brilliant, do it. It took him four years to come up with something that didn't work with 138 different moving parts. Ah, I see, what said, he, I see yeah. what he did there. But it's, it doesn't work. He said, yeah, we know that now. Now we built it. Yeah. And he kept his workforce away from labour yeah. camps, from everything. Very clever. And he scored twice, because at the end of the war, he went back to Mulsheim, having become a French citizen during the uh, conflict, and said, Oi, look what the war did to my factory. And he got 60 million French francs for uh, yeah, well, damage what, to his factory. Look what happened with VW, with, uh, you know, if it wasn't for Major Ivan Hurst. I yes. think it's, it's a story, the Ivan Hurst story is a story that wasn't that well known, but mm. everybody seems to be aware of now. Yes. So I won't repeat it. Well, I will repeat it. Basically, VW wouldn't exist today without the efforts of a British Army officer who saved the factory. Because Henry Ford famously came over, looked at it and said, it ain't worth a damn, didn't he? Correct. And the British motor industry didn't want it. We Was that been, Henry Ford or the son of Henry Ford that, that knocked back the VW factory? I think, um, well, Henry Ford was, was still alive. sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Hitler is famously on record as saying that people should buy a Model T Ford pending the arrival of the true Volkswagen. And uh, Ford was allegedly not unsympathetic to the way Hitler re-energised the industrial might of Germany. It's difficult to talk about this sort of stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which Which is presumably why people don't normally do it. I mean, I interviewed Willie G. Davidson um, of the Harley-Davidson motorcycle manufacturer, famously. I think he was a vice president. They have a lot of vice presidents in American oh, motoring. Yeah. Vice president in charge of stationery <laughs> and things, yes. But he was obviously the public face of the company, being a being a descendant to the founders. And I I dared to ask him whether the Harley Davidson Fat Boy, which most people know from the Terminator movie, the Terminator movie, it's the you know, it's the bike that he famously goes into the bar and says I want your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. And then he takes off on the Harley Davidson Fat Boy. I asked Willie G. Davidson, is that name an amalgam of the nuclear bombs from World War II? And <laughs> he's Fat Man and Little Boy. Because I believe Harley Davidson uh, did casting for the American Air Force. And uh, it, it, straight away his people were on me. They were like, right, that's it. This interview is over. Like this. It was like, whoa. You asked the unsayable because I believe to this day, the the model which has been made the most by the Harley Davidson Motor Company is the wartime bike. The war was good for a lot of companies. But did, how did they get paid? Did, did, did the British government not turn around to the likes of Austin and say, we haven't got any money. You're just going to have to keep going because, you know, it's wartime. No. How, how did it work? They were given money. The Bank of England were printing money. Right. They were paid because the the workers in the factory had to buy... You know, yes, it was on ration, but you had to have your ration. So you got enhanced rations when you were on war work. 
Right. Like guys in the army were paid. They weren't just told, off you go, go and fight for the glory of the Empire. Well, this is... I don't know if we are getting off the subject because I think it, it leads into what we were talk about with the car that we took on the trip. But, um, of course, American GIs coming back, a lot of them got paid in one big lump, didn't they? Mm. Because they'd been in POW camps. And so they just got this big chunk of money. And the British motor industry tried its damnedest to sell them motorbikes and sports cars. Mm. There was very... Certainly internally within the UK, there was almost the the knee-jerk reaction that was seen in 1919 when guys came back from the First World War was seen again. I had uh, the personal effects of a RAF Battle of Britain pilot who was a sergeant pilot, was promoted to um, flying officer, went to Jeeves and Hawks, had his new uniform made, stationed to the Orkneys, went on a patrol, lost. Missing belief, killed in action. Right. And I had the correspondence between Jeeves and Hawks and his parents. Right. It was basically saying, we're awfully sad to hear of the death of your son, but that's 16 guineas and threepence, please, for his uniform. Wow. Despite the fact that he never even got to wear it, never took delivery of it. And his parents eventually paid for it. I've got an even weirder story. I recently encountered a couple of Heidelberg presses in an old bank building in Lancashire. And I saw paperwork. I still don't believe it. I still don't believe it, um, that seemed to indicate that those presses were delivered from Germany in 1941. Having been paid for previously, they were delivered. And I was like, how did this even happen? And they said, well, presumably they would have gone so far under one organisation and then they would have been passed to the care because... This bank had paid for these printing presses and they damn well wanted them. They'd waited two years or two and a half years for them to be delivered and they were needed. And I thought, maybe they were needed to print war stuff, wartime, essential wartime stuff. And so you think, was that the ultimate pragmatism? Was it like, but these are German presses? And they said, well, they've been paid for and we need them. So get them to wherever and then we'll take them from there. As it's, it's an uncomfortable truth, if you like, but... In the late 40s, early 50s, Mintex, one of our sponsors on the trip, put out a poster with a picture of a low-flying hurricane and said, Mintex proudly provided friction materials for every aircraft in the Battle of Britain. And I think I know where said, you're going with this. You mean the RAF aircraft? And Mintex <laughs> said, no, we were receiving payment for our licence to Coswig in Germany. Yeah. So Messerschmitts, Focke-Wulfs all used Mintex clutch materials for driving the propellers and breaking the air. Well, again, both we're, sides. we're going to talk about stuff you shouldn't talk about, but I'm going to do it anyway. All this stuff about Lewis Hamilton and the fact that he drives for... Well, we won't get into the racism side of it, but because it's too complicated and I don't want to upset people even more than they already are. But they always talk about Mercedes and they go, Oh, Mercedes made a car for Hitler. Every single German company that existed at that time made things that were used in the German war effort in exactly the same way. It doesn't mean they were Nazis. The the thing that bothers me is that many people don't seem to be able to disassociate the German people and the Wehrmacht, the German army, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, from the Nazi party. They are two different things. Most people who flew planes for the Luftwaffe or were involved in that were simply people who were doing their job because... They were obliged to, and if they didn't, it was up against the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, 
And the same with the same with those companies, the same with Crooks and the same with Mercedes and BMW and all these companies. They 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 just did as they were told, or else, you know. I know you should keep you very quiet, guy. <laughs> Get off the war and the controversial stuff. Don't upset Mercedes. I'm not. I'm just saying that was the way, you know, that was the way it was. And if you feel, right, okay, if you feel strongly about it, as my grandfather did, my grandfather, if you'd have suggested to him, born in 1900, he was, you know, he was, he, he was aware, if you were born in 1900, you, by the time the First World War broke out, you were aware of what was going on, mm-hmm. too young to be, to be, take part, but fully aware of what was going on. And then he was involved uh, very much in the, in the second conflict of the 20th century. He would never have bought a foreign car. And if you'd have said to him a German or a Japanese car, he would have gone to his uh, study and got his service revolver out of the drawer. That's how strongly he felt about it. Now, I don't. I'm, you know, I'm two generations on from it. I didn't have his experience. And I don't look at a Mercedes and think, oh, Hitler. You know, it's just, no. It's interesting. I, I had exactly this discussion with the guy I was at school with, who's now a, a best-selling historian. And... Uh, Roger Morehouse is his name. He recently published a book called First to Fight about how Poland, the, mm-hmm. the whole time of the Polish invasion and all the broken promises and things, he's written about the um, Nazi-Soviet pact uh, as well. And he's just actually been recognised by the Polish state, given the highest honour the Polish state can wow. give to a non-Pole for his work in setting the record straight. And we had a fa- an interesting conversation about it, and he said, yeah, we, we are the last generation where the Second World War was part of the cultural furniture. Yeah. When we were playing war games as seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds shooting each other, we were Royal Marines shooting Nazis. And we buying were... Battle Picture Weekly. Yes. Do you remember those the little... Victor Books for Boys. And... Small format yeah. sort of Union Jack Jackson. Do you remember him? Yes. He was a British guy who joined the American the Marines. Marines and fought With in Japan. With Bud and Banyan as yeah, his yeah. sergeant. Yeah. Yeah, and we're the, we're the last generation that were brought up, as you said... Part of the cultural furniture, the cultural background. Because I remember watching the cenotaph. Now, from the house we were in, it's pre nineteen seventy nine, and seeing people. And my grandfather was too old for active service. He was born in nineteen hundred and eight, so he was in the Royal Artillery and Coastal Command and at the regimental depot, and he was still working. And there's mm. people there who were in their fifties in the seventies. And then you remember, well, it's only 30 years ago Yeah. when the war finished. So if you were 20 in 1944, 1974, you're only 50. Yeah. So as we're growing up, we're seeing guys still going to work every day who once a year would have a chest full of medals. Very much so, yeah. I'm just trying to put it in context because I'm trying to find out what Britain was like, what the mortaring landscape of Britain was like after the war. Did people have money to spend? I know I'm very interested in Sir Stafford Cripps and, and his Export role. Export or die. Export or die, yeah. And Leonard Lord, who, who we'll talk about, because the idea that Leonard Lord wasn't just the top man at Austin, who were Britain's biggest motoring manufacturer, yeah. They were. Leonard Lord had, had, a slight tangent, had come up through Morris and hit the glass ceiling. Yeah. So William Morris kept a vice-like grip on the reins. And um, Lord left and went to Austin because Sir Herbert well, had no anointed successor. Yeah, and of course, um, 
if we're talking about the war, the reason for Cecil Kimber's demise is directly related to the war. Do you know that story? Go on, Steve. Well, was, was he coming out of, was it Euston Station? And he was the only person sat in first class. He was going back up to Oxford, I think, from London on yep. the train. But during the war, the rails weren't renewed because th there wasn't there steel. Were uses for yeah, steel yeah. wasn't available. And so the train that he was on came out of the station, but then because the rails were so worn, it started to go backwards instead of forwards. And there was a horrendous accident because the, the rail was so worn and the weather conditions, and he was the only person in that carriage, and he was the only person who was killed in that accident. But it's obviously directly related to yes. the war. Yeah. Of course, Cecil Kimber was the... What, what do we call him? Because it's always like designer, engineer. You talk about W.O. Bentley and you say he was the creator of those cars, but he was very much an engineer. There was no styling. And yet you talk about William Lyons at, at Jaguar, and I think there was a man who was very much a stylist rather than an engineer. He relied on engineers to do the oily bits. Yes. He drew the cars. Mm -hmm. So what was Kimber? Was he both, Cecil Kimber? Kimber was the refiner of Morris's into right. a sporting variety, if you like. The early flat-nosed, bull-nosed Morris MGs, Morris garages. They Kimber's are such great-looking cars. Yep. I love, so distinctive. Mm -hmm. And they were, it was kind of, you know... People talk about the Between the Wars cars and they talk about a golden era. And it was, as long as you were like the Maharaja of Jaipur or <laughs> you owned half of Algeria or you were a cigar-chomping American business magnate, if you wanted a, a Pierce Arrow or a Delage or something like that. But it's, for me, and I look at those insane Cruella de Vil roadsters and think, yeah, fabulous, but, you know, people like us, <laughs> a tiny number of people... I look at something like a Bullnose Morris and it, I just feel, yeah, there was That's a one of those guys people. scored. Um, yeah. Bill Lyons, as you referenced, started off making sidecars, the Swallow Sidecar Company. In Blackpool, Lancashire, not far from us here. Then started rebodying Austin 7s. The most basic little car you could get, you could have a Swallow Austin 7. Yeah. Much prettier than the standard factory offerings. And then you got the standard special, the SS. Whoops. Fancy calling a car SS in retrospect. And yeah. SS became Jaguar yeah, after because the war, of the negative association. Yeah, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to call a car SS after the second war. <laughs> Can you imagine? There's a big company just out here called BLM, and they must be thinking, we need to change the name. I mean, not because it's negative, but just because something, you know, you go along for years with a name and then something much bigger comes along and you think, Oh well, do you remember there was a very successful slimming product? Yeah, don't 80s. go there, guy. Don't go there. I know what you're going to say. Let's let's go instead. Now. Called nimble. Uh, I knew what you were going to say then. I'm glad you didn't say it. Um, there's so many things that are often not said on this show mm. for obvious reasons, unless Alec Reed Entwistle is on, in which case they, are. they all get said. Um, <clears throat> so people might have had money, but Sir Stafford Cripps, who we just mentioned, who was, they often say, the most gifted politician who was never the Prime Minister of, of the UK. Although I was going to say the name of EP. But let, again, please, let's not... We, we've been controversial enough as it is. So let's say Sir Stafford Cripps, the post-war Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, an ascetic man who who eschewed his ministerial car, didn't want a car, he walked to the houses... He caught the tube and walked... Mm would stop at the same Greasy Spoon Cafe every day 
on the way there because he liked to listen to what working people were saying. He used to listen to the conversations to ga gauge the mood of the nation. And he said to the motor manufacturers, listen, we don't care if people want cars and motorbikes. They can't have them. We need dollars. Build flashy cars and sell them to the Americans and do it. And, and basically, he, he said to Leonard Lord, you tell the others to do this. Didn't they have a, a famous meeting at his house at Licky Hill where they all got to get... Don't, don't you pull that face. Licky Hill's just south of Birmingham. Licky Grange was Licky Herb Grange. Austin's house. Which, because right. Austin put everything into the company after his death during the war, it was the headquarters, the CEO's seat for a while until Lord got rid of it. It's now a housing estate, bizarrely. It got flattened, but there we are. Everything's a housing estate <clears> now, guy. Um, but yes, Britain's uh, a housing estate. He did the maths. He worked out that only 20 to 30%... Yes, there were lots of people with money who wanted cars, and they could be catered for, but they need to be patient. So, because the last thing you wanted to stop people putting money down. So you put a deposit on your car in December 1946, and you could expect it by New Year 1949. Wow. But they had the money. That sounds like waiting for a Trabant in, in East Germany, <laughs> doesn't yeah. it? It was, but Austin came out of the war with a design that was based on... Lord's 1938 trip to America. It's a Buick. Yeah. <laughs> it's a scaled-down Buick, yeah. but with a brand-new... I like a Buick. ...2.1-litre overhead valve engine. Everything was side-valve before the war, and they came out, having worked with Rolls-Royce and all the engineering experience during the, during the war, and had a really nice, powerful, as we know, very square four-cylinder engine. Uh, yeah. We saw 80-plus yeah. on the continent, in Germany, on the Autobahn, <laughs> Um, in we the were, 16. We were, uh, do you not remember when we went on the, well, uh, we should move forward to the trip and we'll talk about me getting a phone call from a motoring journalist. A well-known motoring journalist was following us in a Range Rover, imploring me to slow, <laughs> to slow down in a 70-year-old car. So we had to get a car. When you called me, we didn't have an Austin 16, a uh, post-war Austin 16. I thought and finding was, one wasn't easy, was I it? I thought that was the easy part. Yeah. I thought, I've been trying to do this for years. I want to do it for the 50th anniversary, 60th anniversary. The, the planets aligned, Total and Mintex. We should explain, Austin themselves did it back in the day. And as Guy just said, you'd wanted to do it on the 50th anniversary of their trip, the 60th. It was coming up to the 70th. You called me. I said, I'm in. And then we tried to find the car. Absolutely. And I saw seven Austin 16s. God, I'm glad, I, over I'm glad I didn't go with you. I, I flew to <laughs> Belfast to test drive one. I was in the Cotswolds. There was a guy in North Yorkshire who said, I've got the best Austin 16 in the world. It won't let you down. So I went up and I went into his garage and he was right. It was absolutely brilliant, but he'd let two inches into each of the wheels. So it was running modern tires and he'd put a five speed gearbox in it. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, mate. It, it, it's wonderful. It's brilliant. It's great. But, but it's your Austin 16 yeah. for 2015. I don't want that. I want to do this in what it feels like to drive a 1947 car. Mate, I love your fundamentalism because I am absolutely of the same stripe. Don't, you know, 12-volt electrics, modern tyres and disc brakes. <laughs> Away with you. It's not, you're not getting the experience. I get it. If you want to modify an old car, you want to put a Tremec in it, you want to put Willwood disc brakes on it, you want to convert it to 12 volts, seal beam headlights, all that sort of stuff. Because you're using it, great. 
fine, fill your boots. We weren't doing that. No. We were trying to put ourselves in the position of Alan Hess, Sammy Davis, the guys, not that Sammy Davis, not Junior, and it wasn't his dad either. Sammy Davis, who won the Mon. Yep, Bentley yeah. boy. A Bentley boy. Uh, we were trying to put ourselves in, in their position, and, and a lot of people would think it controversial because they'd say, well, you were a hazard to yourself and other road users by driving a 70-year-old car. Because here was the big difference. They were doing it in new cars. Yes. Yeah, the cars they were doing it were brand new. They took three brand new top-of-the-range Austins. The idea was seven capital cities and seven days to finish at the first post-war motor show in Geneva. Mm. So we needed to do seven capital cities in seven days to get to the Geneva Motor Show, which was on then. And people would say, it's not 3,000 miles from Oslo to Geneva, but it is if, if you, you go the route. via the major capital cities, where, of course, Austin would have had a distributor, yeah? Yes, their problem was, of course, that Germany in the March of 1947 was off-limits. You couldn't stop in Germany. They had to carry enough fuel with them to go through Germany. I'm just quoting from the back. They did 33 and a half hours of non-stop driving at an average of 13 miles an hour. Wow. Because Germany was knocked to pieces. Yeah, Bridges but... were still out. There were minefields that they couldn't go through. They had to turn around, go back, find a different route. We were lucky. We went straight across the top of Germany, no problem. So was it Alan Hess's idea? Yes. Alan Hess. <laughs> Fancy this. We, we can't get away from the war. We can never get away from the war in this country. Hess is not really a name you would expect to be involved in a high-profile role with Britain's biggest motor manufacturer in the immediate post-war period. He does note in the original book, Gullible's Travels, that he was a bit worried when they got to come out of Germany. And here he was, Herr Hess, presenting his passport to try and get out of Germany. But basically his dad had legged it from Germany when he realised that it was all going... Uh... Well, Alan, Alan Hess had been in the UK for years. In the 1930s, he was uh, involved in running racing teams at Brooklands. But he was German. A few generations earlier, yes. Oh, right, so he was British-born. Yeah. Right, OK. Yes. This Hess, Alan, was born in the UK. He could have changed his name, couldn't he? <laughs> you know, he was, they, were, they were driving around Euro Europe where big parts of it were still militarised zones, yep. and he was handing over a passport that said he was called Hess. But he relied upon the fact that it was a British passport. <laughs> yes, of course. Of the time. Yeah, but and at the time... Hess was a, a, a genius for promotion. Yeah. He was public relations officer at, at the Austin... Was he the first guy to do that in the UK, really? And again, like you were saying, the Austin 16 design was very much influenced by American car design, mm. particularly Buick. Yeah. Were Alan Hess's ideas on publicity, uh, were they influenced by what was happening in America? Hess's three biggest, um, he hated the word stunt, but publicity events were the tour that we did. Yeah. He then took an Austin Atlantic to Indianapolis and set 78 international speed and endurance records around Indianapolis. Dreadful car. Horrible car. Um, <laughs> but then he... But well done. <laughs> he went with um, Ken Wharton, BRM racing driver, yeah. Le Mans driver, and they went round the equator in an Austin A40 Sports, Jensen-bodied A40 Sports car. They were Alan Hess's three big ones. At one point, he had 147 international records wow. to his, to his oh, name in oh, Austin products. 147? Which sounds massively impressive, but... A load I of had three were, Guinness records at one point. Oof, impressed. We'll talk about it another time. A load, a load of them were the product of one week's running. Right. So 
Standing yeah. start mile, flying mile, yeah. standing start kilometre, flying kilometre, flying five miles, flying five kilometres. But it was ten. all about putting the Austin, Austin name. Dependable. Austin. Yeah. In the newspaper. You, yeah. you buy another car, you invest in, in an Austin. Austin. Yeah, of course. They wanted to be able to say, here we all are, leaving Longbridge. It's nine o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. We will be in Geneva next weekend. No, you won't. Well, but we will, actually. The problem was, when they tried to leave the Austin plant near Birmingham, they were doing it in the worst winter in Up living memory. Yeah, the worst winter on record at that time. Probably. Roads were blocked, trains stopped running. They were driving through fields. They had to wait for a flat loader on a train. They got to Newcastle, having missed the boat train they were supposed to be on. Didn't the government get involved in getting them to... Um, Leonard Lord sent a cable asking... Um, For a train to be sent. Yes, that wow. this is vital to the British export yeah. drive. Yeah. And uh, Sir Stafford Cripp said, yeah, go on then. Yeah. It I was see a, the point. Yeah, it was the same when Triumph broke the, uh, the, did the bike record on the, at Bonneville, hence the Triumph Bonneville. When the bike came back to the country, the Johnny Allen Streamliner bike, it was impounded by customs, and again, a phone call to the Ministry of Work or whatever... You know, they said this is it is vital that this this motorcycle is released as as we need it to publicise these records that Triumph have set. And all of a sudden, a call from the Ministry of Work, and it's kind of yeah, the national interest yes. is more important than rules. And and I wonder if that's I was going to say I wonder if that's something that's gone. Of course that's gone. You could never do that now. What am I saying? Of course the idea about the national good has completely disappeared. So they were going in the worst winter. We weren't. No. When we set off... Well, when you set off from Birmingham, because, of course, I met you in Oslo. Yeah. Yeah. The most expensive city in the world. <laughs> most expensive city in the world. Um, we, we drove... Across to Newcastle, you can't do the crossing that they did back in the day, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So we went instead to um, Amsterdam, drove from Amsterdam to Hamburg, stayed the night in Hamburg, drove to Copenhagen, got the ferry overnight from Copenhagen to Oslo, and then you and Karen met us in Oslo. Yeah, and me and my, my missus met you in Oslo, but we should go back to getting the car, then we'll go to True. Oslo. True. Um, we found it about two miles from where we are now. I had, as I said, driven and tested... In Manchester, I should say, we're in Manchester. Yeah, none of them were right, and in desperation, genuinely, I put on the Austin 16 notice board online, the Austin County Owners Club, does anyone have an Austin 16 that I could buy because I want to redo the Hess trip? And within ten minutes, I get an email from a chap saying, there's an Austin 16 in my late mother-in-law's garage, it's been there since 1964, it was my late father-in-law's car... Would that be of interest? Yes, where are you? Oh, we're in Manchester, Greater Manchester. Why didn't we... Brilliant. Why didn't we film getting that car out? I can't remember. Because I think because we were busy getting it out. We were... Too, uh, because we were getting close, because yeah. we wanted to do the... I wanted to do it as they'd done, so there was a trip to the West Country involved yeah. for a shakedown. I was just so focused on getting it, I think I'm lucky that we took stilts photos of doing yeah. it into it. But it had been in there so long... That the drive was three inches higher than the bottom of the door. The drive, so to jimmy the, them open. The driveway. It was a traditional large semi-detached house just yeah. outside Manchester, in the suburbs, just outside Manchester, with a motorhome. Yeah, and the driveway had been relayed twice since the car was put in that garage. Yeah. 
We had to, we had to crowbar the garage doors open. But here's the thing: been in there since 1964. As long as I've been alive, three of the tyres held air. Yeah. We pumped all four up, and three of them held air. Yeah, we managed to get it rolling. At the time, I think I I remember feeling a bit odd because I had. I was getting a real track record for buying deceased people's automobiles. I'd yeah. bought a Jawa motorcycle, uh, a, an old Jag, and a Skoda... Don't ask why. I think you know why, but let's not get I into do. that. And a Skoda Estelle, all from people who said, Oh, yeah, Uncle Albert loved this car. <laughs> you know, it was like, or, or motorbike, or whatever it was. And here again, we were buying a car, and what a story... The guy had put it there in 64, but he'd always thought that one day he would bring it out and drive it. Yeah. As the years and decades went by, he'd, he'd... Did he change the oil and stuff like that? He gave it... He ran it up religiously every year. <sighs> he serviced it every year. What a sad story. He had ordered some replacement springs for it. Yeah. Because it was settling on its rear road springs, and he'd changed them. The guy was a toolmaker, he was a professional engineer, but he never yeah. got it back on the road. And his only child, his daughter, remembers it was sort of a, a family tradition stroke standing joke that, oh, right, it's the Austin weekend. It's the Austin And they fire it up and yeah. Yeah, try and not to never, die and everything. It was in there for nearly 60 years. And then we got it out and drove it all around Europe. How cool is we that? Did. So we set off from Oslo, not just on the same day, not just on the same hour, but at exactly, exactly as the 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 town hall in the centre of Oslo struck 9am, we were flagged off as they were by the president of the Norwegian RAC. Using the same flag that had been used yes. outside the same <laughs> building, which is now a Gap store, but at the time it was the Austin dealership. Well, you spot the story, Guy. Well, it was the same physical building, yeah. the same curbside. Um, I remember sitting in the car, waiting for you, the clock, watching yeah. the clock with the guy with the flag on the bonnet, and as it started to chime, start being very relieved that the car started. To be fair, starting just looking at you, go right, we're off then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bit more clutch, handbrake off, flag goes up, and we were off. And that knowing that the end of that day was in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> We were going over the top, not the easy route, not the, the autobahn, because they didn't use that. No. We used the same border crossing that they'd used, the yeah. same back roads through the woods. And I remember climbing out of Oslo, and it starting to sleet, climbing a bit more, then it's snowing, and looking out yeah. the window and thinking, oh, we might need these... Because um, it was cold but mild. tyres as well. Cold but tired, uh, mild in Oslo, yeah. wasn't it? As soon as we headed for Sweden. <laughs> as we headed to Stockholm, the... So, the temperature got a little bit nippy. We what sort of what sort of because people will be thinking, well, you know, how fast is it and all that sort of stuff. So, the the sixteen was the top of the Austin range, mm -hmm. but it was really a pre-war design, wasn't it? Um, kind it, of. It was. There was another sixteen made before the war, yes, which was, but it was due to re, to be replaced just as the unpleasantness began. It was. Um, as I say, it was based on nineteen thirty eight trip that Lord took to the States, bought some ideas back from Detroit. No, he looked at a Buick and went, yeah, I like well, that. let's, yeah. let's, four-fifths or, or three-quarters that size, that'd be just a ticket. It would have been the 1940 model Austin. Yeah. But it was still new to Britain. So they running boards, running boards, separate wings, not, not a unitary body design, not monocoque. Suicide doors. 
chassis. As you remember. Yeah, yeah, as I remember, as they popped up at 70 mile an hour. <laughs> uh, that's why they're called... And no seatbelts, that's why they're called <laughs> suicide, suicide doors. Yeah. But, um, top-of-the-range car in its day, <laughs> quite a decent performance. Very comfortable, 80 mile an hour plus performance. As we found out. As we found out. <laughs> the, the big problem we had was it was forecast to be a really rough winter. Yeah. And Total, one of the sponsors, had formulated some oil... Because this was our trip, not their trip. This their, trip, trip. Their, their trip, their trip was, was appalling. The worst, yeah. And we were forecast to have the same. So Total had given us some really lightweight oil uh, that would stay viscous down to minus thirty degrees. Brilliant. It very rarely got below freezing. Well, it was the biggest temperature change I think that I've uh, that we experienced was minus five in Sweden as we headed for Stockholm, and it did get cold in Sweden. Yeah. And then, because obviously the effects of, you know, the Gulf Stream and all that, presumably as you go east... It, Do you remember it, being in Brussels or driving through Belgium and passing a tower with a thermometer on it yeah. going, 68? It's yeah. 68 degrees. Yeah, yeah, it was 68 degrees. And, 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 just, and just a few days early, two days, three We've days been earlier. Minus five. Minus five. Yeah. And so obviously, she smoked a bit. Because it was burning oil. Like, she used an awful lot of it. <laughs> used yeah. a lot. How much oil did we use? Uh, 75 litres. <laughs> Almost more oil than petrol. <laughs> and this is right. We should say thank you, Total, for giving oh, it us. Absolutely. But it was the wrong oil for the trip. But, but not through their fault. No, or our fault because no. we went on what the weather was predicted. To the be Met like. Office gave me a three-month forecast, a two-month forecast, a one-month, and then a week to go. Mm. And at a week to go, they were forecasting minus sixteen, minus eighteen. We came within 27 miles of the Arctic Circle when we went up over yeah. the top, so it yeah. was supposed to be cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing was, um, it wasn't just us two. We had a backup team, mm. and including a mechanic, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, for your efforts. And every night, the car needed a full service because 500 miles was the service interval on Austin 16, wasn't Pretty it? Pretty much, yep. yeah. So what would that involve, just... Jeff, oil and fluids... Um change the fuel filter, nip up the brakes, nip, up, it. nip up the brakes, adjust, <laughs> adjust in the brakes every night. Remember the Austin 16 has an internal jacking system? Yes. <clears throat> so he'd jack it up, take the wheels off, nip the brakes up, blow them out, make sure everything was go. And fair credit to Jeff Marshall, that car ran like a sewing machine, apart from when we had some dodgy fuel in France. Yeah. Like an absolute Hold dream. On. Not Total Fuel. No. We should have gone to a Total station. There wasn't one. There wasn't one. But um, I do like a French service station, though, oh. with the old baguette and the, the ham and cheese and a, and a, 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 a small, one of those diddy little Cronenbergs, obviously, within, you know, yep. the drink-driving regulations. We, we shared the driving, so whoever was driving had an Orangina. <laughs> had a Cronenberg, naturally. But do you remember the, the service stations in Switzerland? Uh, remind we me. We went to a service station in Switzerland on the last leg of the last night, walked in, and there was a de Havilland vampire oh, yeah. in the service yeah. station. And then there was a branch of Anne Summers, effectively, also in the service station. Yeah, the Swiss are an odd lot, aren't they? <laughs> and then there was a cuckoo clock shop, genuinely, and a Toblerone shop. It was very you bizarre. see, the thing is, right, it was a great trip. I really enjoyed it. Saw a bit of Europe that I hadn't seen before was impressed, hugely impressed by the performance of the Austin. Mm. Um, 
for a 70-year-old car, it gave us very little trouble. It, the, only, the only trouble we really had was when we got into the Alps and it struggled with... But a lot of cars, a 10-year-old car would have struggled with some of the inclines that we had to go yeah. up and down. And that was because of the, the, the rank petrol we were carrying on the run from Paris to uh, Geneva. Yeah. Because we, we'd had to fill up with what we could find... It wasn't total. It was when we stopped in that supermarket as we were going from Mons, yeah, a twenty-four hour supermarket in the evening, yeah. filled up with. Not denigrating it, but for modern engines, not a problem. For that yeah. engine, the way it's set up yeah. on a single carburetor, it was murder. There's yeah. some footage online somewhere of you and I in the sixties swearing, backfiring. Oh yeah, filmed yeah. from the, yeah, uh, the chase that. car, which was given us by Jaguar Land Rover. Thank you to Richard Agnew and Jaguar Land Rover for a. A Jaguar F-Pace for the duration of the uh, the tour as our support vehicle. But it's like there's a machine gun being fired. It's bap, 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 As I, this thing's misfiring on this dirty fuel. As you know, I drive an old Alpha, so a very old Alpha. Well, not that old. It's not an 8C or anything like that. It's an old Spider, but it's 50 years old. 50? Yeah, 50 years old now. Mm. 1970. Yeah, it's 50 years. Damn it, that car's 50 years old. And, and when I'm not driving that, I drive a, an 83 Citroen, so, which to me feels remarkably modern. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's like, we, we, you, you've turned up today in a new Suzuki. We get to drive new cars, test new cars, whatever, for whatever reason. But our enthusiasm, I find myself going back further and further, mm-hmm. looking for something that delivers... An experience that you can't get from a modern car. It's, I mean, if you did our trip, 3,000 miles in six days, in a modern car through Europe in winter, you might think you'd had a bit of an adventure. But nothing like the, the adventure that we had in a 70-year-old car. I mean, right, so here's, here's the deal. You, the reason I think that I, I want to use old cars, not to have one as like a, a, you know, a high days and holidays car, but to actually use them as transport is because you find out so much, you learn so much from it. And what I learned from driving that Austin 16 was the importance of aerodynamics. Because as we were going down a motorway, a highway, a main route, whatever you want to call it, in whichever country we're in, you realise that if you had to overtake freight, if you had to overtake large trucks, as you got alongside it, the wash from the front of the truck would push you back so much. So you'd be making decent progress, then you'd encounter the wash from the front of the, the air coming off the front of the truck. That would hold you right back. So you'd grit your teeth <laughs> and get through it. And then as soon as you crested the front of the vehicle, it was like being a champagne cork popped out of a bottle and you had to be quick on the steering. You think, why don't we experience this in modern cars? Aerodynamics. The aerodynamics of modern cars stops that from happening. When you get in something that was as four square as that Austin 16, it was a flat windscreen. Yeah, and it could open at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we did twice in the snow. Yeah. If you remember, to keep it unfrozen. Yeah. That's a proper man's adventure, isn't it? Where you've got to wind the windscreen open to stop it from freezing over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't stop us from freezing, but it stopped the windscreen from Mm, freezing. Mm. So, what difficulties did they have? We, we didn't encounter too many difficulties. Here's the thing. You know, like, the, the sort of people would say, oh, yeah, road trip, I love it when Top Gear used to do those road trips. And you think to yourself, yeah, well, we actually did it for real. And the fact is, we had a great time and we didn't have too much trouble. 
because we planned it, the car was prepared for the trip, we had a talented, experienced mechanic with us in the backup team, and so we kind of got there a day early, didn't we, really? We did, but that was because the freedom moving through Germany, as yeah. I say. But what I'm saying is, oh, I love those Top Gear road trips where they have all sorts of hijinks and you go, yeah, well, guess what? <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's a bit of fun, isn't it? That's a bit of nonsense. Because people say to me, oh, what's the fastest car in the world? I say, Chrysler Voyager, people carrier. Because that's what they film out of <laughs> when they're having their races on these TV shows. They use one of those Voyagers with the side doors because you can put the camera on the tripod, you can film out the side of it, and it's always in front of the Lamborghini or the Ferrari or the whatever it is that's having a race. When you actually do it for real like they did and we did, if you prepare properly, there isn't that drama that people seem to love so much. But I still got a lot, I still got a lot out, lot out of the trip and I still thought that it was an adventure and I don't think we should have been... This is, I see it all the time on, on people's YouTube channels and in conventional TV shows where I think they're deliberately effing up mm. because they think it'll make a better programme. But I've kind of lost interest because I've realised that they're doing it deliberately. If it just happened, you know, if we'd have had some major dra drama, the engine fell out or... Like we did on the, the Cornwall shakedown run. Yeah, because we had a shakedown run like they did and we went down to Devon and Cornwall and then there was rather a special moment, wasn't there, where we failed to proceed in the middle of the it night, dark, in the middle of nowhere. It was horrible, it was filthy. We'd had two moments where... One, where our support driver and I had gone back to try and find someone, only to come back to find that you'd managed to get the car started. Yeah. Uh, but climbing up um, a certain hill on Bodmin Moor, no, forget it. We were dead. Well, they backed up, didn't they? And we tried backing up, but it still didn't work. No. And then, of course, the police arrived. Out of yes. nowhere, the police arrived. Suddenly, middle of nowhere, <laughs> blues and, almost blues and twos, certainly blues. Yeah, a police, uh, both genders, uh, yeah. male, female police people, and we showed them the original book where the page where they'd, they'd broken, broken down, down... Which was within half a mile of where we'd broken down. Within half a mile, 70 years previously, on that night. Yeah. And the police had turned up to ask them what they were doing. doing. <laughs> Have we got pictures with those coppers or was it too no, dark? No, we didn't. It was too dark. Yeah. It was too dark for that. It was, wasn't but it? We, we had to bail. We locked up the 16. All of us went in our support vehicle to the hotel, which was very nice, and the next day, the AA, thank you to the AA, came and took us, and we went to Bristol Airport and got a hire car. So the car returned back, and we had to drop the engine out. Total engine rebuild, yeah. we've run the big ends. Yeah. Um, which was fine. Rather do that on Bodmin Moor no. than in Stockholm. Yeah. But what you're supposed to do, according to the way that these things are done on the telly now, is you're supposed to go with a car that the big end goes in and then you can be there. We could have been shouting at each other at the side of the motorway. <laughs> I think we only shouted at each other once, didn't we? Um, I, I shouted, please stop, when I opened the suicide door because I was so tired. We're doing a good 70 on a motorway and I thought, why is it so drafty in here? Oh, because I haven't shut the door properly. <laughs> and I went, whoa! <laughs> you grabbed it. <laughs> and here's where we found out why they're called suicide doors. <laughs> Because if you're travelling at speed and you try and shut it, 
as you lean out... The wind catches it. The wind catches it and tries to pull you out of the car to certain death. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad not, I didn't kill you. I'm not sure I'd have coped with the rolling process at 70. Yeah, I know your missus and I really wouldn't have wanted to have to explain <laughs> to you, look, I'm really sorry, but Guy's dead because we were driving this daft old car at 70-odd <laughs> miles an hour and uh, I told him to shut the door and... You know, you know why they call suicide <laughs> doors now, don't you? You're they should be called. Oh no, suicide's probably the right name, death for them, isn't it? Yeah, death doors. The doors of death. They're coming back, aren't they? Yeah. What's got them? The the the, the, the what's it had them, didn't it? The the Mazda, mm-hmm. the latest version of the the RX seven. Yeah, the RX eight had rear. Suicide. Is there a mini? I hate using that word in reference to that thing that BMW make, which is probably a good car, but it's not a mini. It's not a mini. Well, it was an Austin originally, wasn't it? Austin, a Morris, real mini. Yes, Austin yeah. Seven, Morris Mi- Mini Minor. So we got there. We got to Geneva to the Geneva show. Do you know what? I was a bit. I've been to Geneva, the Geneva show, as they did many times, and I thought, what a difference between the optimism that there would have been from people going to that post-war, that first mm-hmm. post-war Geneva show, and seeing the, the wonders that the motor industry promised. And then going now and there being this massive uncertainty about the future of personal transportation. Because even three years ago, the motor industry was yet to decide that the future was... Electric. Electric and, yeah. and hybrid. Yeah. It was, it was still, ooh, are we, aren't we, here's a styling exercise that could be electric, but here's a hydrogen fuel cell. We could be going that way. I never thought that was going to be a good No, one. but the, the industry was right... Uh, I thought that was a really interesting, as I took you to the airport, which, as, if people know the Geneva show, the, the show is in yeah. Exhibition Centre on the airport. Yeah. So we had a, had a look round, and I was driving back from dropping you off. I took the Jaguar, because Jeff was servicing the Austin. Yeah, again. And drove back thinking Thanks, Jeff. how weird that we'd just done all this in a 70-year-old car, had proved it was fit for purpose. We yep. got there a day early. Got there a day early. And... Yet the industry hadn't really made progressed massively. It yeah. hadn't made its mind up where no. the next step was. As you say, in 1947, they knew with 100% certainty that the worst was behind them and yeah. we could make anything. Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the optimism of it. Mm. And, and like you say, we just proved that 70 years ago, a new car was capable of driving 3,000 miles in six days. Yeah. And as you said... Unmodified. Uh, we we yeah. barely... We barely altered the specification of that car we, we as it nothing. came out of the Longbridge factory. I had a pair of wheels in the back behind the seats with Jeep tyres on. In period, that's exactly what they did. Yeah, they would have but done the we same didn't thing. get to put them on. No, we, we didn't, didn't need to put them on. They were unused. But it, the fact that yes, as you said, Steve, a modern car you could do the journey and you think, well, I've got a bad back or whatever after driving yeah. three and a half thousand miles in seven days. Yeah. But we did it in something that did it 70 years before. And it, it was exactly it. We had the option of putting twin carbs on it. No. We had the option of increasing the diff to a van diff. For it. No. I was a little worried about tyres. I know somebody that, who had a, who was on a vintage run on a motorcycle and he was running the tyres the that, the, that the bike would have run in the 20s with inner tubes, obviously. And... Uh, when an inner tube goes on the front on a motorcycle, as you well know, as, as I know from experience, you know, it, it, it's an issue. And this guy hadn't... Because, again, the other thing that he'd done, and this is an issue within classic motorcycling, he was wearing period gear. Mm. 
when really what you should wear is the best safety equipment you've got mm. because you're far more likely to have a problem with a 70-year-old motorcycle than you are with a brand-new one. Mm. And therefore, you should be prepared for it. But you feel a right nana wearing sort of carbon fibre, titanium, kangaroo hide leathers and all that sort of stuff and an airbag jacket on, on a, a 20s bike. Tank. Yeah, so you put a bell staff and a cork helmet and gauntlets and off you go, which isn't ideal. Yeah, we, we put modern tyres on, but to a period pattern, Longstone tyres. Thank you to the guys at Longstone. They put us on. They're the people, aren't they, if you've got... <coughs> Dougal, if you've got Google Corley and yeah. his team at Longstone Tyres. Here in the UK, they They're are fantastic the suppliers. They gave us four tyres. They gave us the Jeep tyres as well to uh, to fit, and they were perfect. We didn't get a puncture. We didn't get any issues. We didn't. We, we didn't checked, get a puncture. Jeff checked the tyre pressures at his daily servicing, but... They were fine. So where are we going next, guy? What what, what we do? What are we going in? Right, nineteen forty-seven. I've got an itch. I need to scratch it. Nineteen forty-seven. This made headlines. Right. The Austin trip made massive headlines, and three Parisian gentlemen read about it and decided that there must be a new French car that was at least the equal of what the Les Anglais yeah. were doing. Yeah. And the only new French car that, or the French car that they chose, was a Panard. Dyna X. I love a Panda. Based on a pre-war design by J.A. Gregoire, front-wheel drive, horizontally opposed, twin-cylinder engine. And in 1948, they took their holidays, fairly vacances, in July, and they drove from Paris all the way up to Helsinki, having a few detours into the Arctic Circle, and back again. So in July next year, having secured a Panard DX. I've seen it. It looks amazing. We plan to do exactly the same, except we won't be going back to Paris. We're starting from Paris. PSA, the Peugeot Citroën Group, have given us their museum in Paris to start from. They're hosting the Le Grand Départ from Paris. <laughs> and we will head up through Belgium, through Germany, across the water to Denmark. From Denmark, we'll go over that wonderful bridge that we went over on the Austin 16 yep. tour. Love that bridge. Back up. Past all those Saab aeroplanes on sticks in the middle of the motorway. Yeah, that's weird. Into the Arctic Circle. We'll go to all the places they visited and back. But coming back, we'll go back via Oslo, the most expensive city in the world. I paid 110 quid for pizza for five people. <laughs> I'll never forget your face. Pay for that. When the kid on the scooter told you how much it was, it was like, I was like, that's more than £100 for some pizza. <laughs> Crazy. And we didn't have alcohol. It was two Just... litre bottles of Coke. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But anyway, we'll go back that way. Do we have to? <laughs> to go and say hi to the people we met. We'll do the overnight boat down to, to uh, Copenhagen and then back via... This Holland. is what old cars are for, isn't it? Yeah, you've got to use right. them. If you, want to, if you live in Manchester and you want to go to Nuxford, which is about 15 miles away, and sit on a deck chair next to your old car, fine. If that's what you want to do. Mm. But I, we think there's so much more adventure and fun and 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 living to be done by going getting a map out and going the Arctic the Arctic Circle. <laughs> Let's yep. go. I may come I may live to regret saying this <laughs> in a public forum, but I am so looking forward to this. And in a Panard as well, such an unusual, innovative car. What is it? Horizontally opposed twin is it air cooled? Twin air cooled. Front wheel drive. Front wheel drive, fifty brake like, horsepower. Looks like it's out of the Jetsons. Yeah. Fantastic. Aluminium body, so it's as light as anything. You can lift the back end. So obviously there's no diff or anything. It's just yeah. wheels with brakes. You can lift the back end up if you get a puncture. 
I'm really looking forward to it. Guy wrote a book about our adventure and what he did cleverly was incorporate the original book that was written by Alan Hess, who we've talked about quite a lot in this podcast, uh, back in the day. So you get Alan's book and the book that Guy wrote about our trip and everything that we did in the same one, and it's available from... Douglas Leverage Publications, um, or All Good Bookshops. It's got a proper ISBN number, and um, its uh, ISBN is 9781-900-113-12-0. But it's called Gullible's Travels, and it's available now. That's it for another episode of Speed Shop. Exciting changes coming here at the Speed Shop, as well as listening to us. You're going to be able to see us. Oh, the excitement, we can't wait. So uh, watch out for that.